Good morning again. Today we are continuing our series called The Road to Christmas. And this series, in this series, we are talking about how Christmas transforms people. Because we live in a culture that seems to believe that Christmas just happens to you. And that, you know, the, the December is just a magical time that makes us all feel different. And I guess the hope is that if we go through enough Decembers, we'll just feel different all year round and we'll eventually act the way Christmas inspires us to act. Or maybe a month is just as long as we can keep it together, being, you know, showing peace on earth and goodwill to men. What we're talking about in this series, though, is that uh, at the first Christmas, only a small number of people were actually affected, were actually transformed, and it's because each one of them made a choice. God called each one of them, and they each made a choice to be a part of it. And the same remains true today about Christmas, that what changes because of the birth of Jesus is something that we need to decide to be a part of. We can't just passively assume that it's going to happen. We've been looking at the stories of the people that are a part of the, the Christmas scene, and we've talked about Zechariah, and last week we talked about Mary. Today we're going to talk about Joseph. And I'm excited to talk about Joseph because I've been thinking a lot about Joseph lately for two reasons. Number one is that on Friday night I played Joseph. As the, the parent of the youngest child in the church, I was cast as Joseph so that Maggie could play Jesus. And, um, and so I've been preparing for that role. Also, James, our three-year-old, has been learning the story of Christmas in detail in, um, in our preschool, and it's now his favorite game, and he always wants to play Joseph. So he plays Joseph. Our two-year-old, uh, Charlie, plays Mary, and they take a little doll and put it under her shirt so that she can be pregnant, and my wife is, has been cast. This is all, James is the casting director. He's cast my wife as the angel. So he will lead my wife, Casey, to Charlie and tell her to tell Charlie that she's going to have a baby. And then he will lead her to another place and lay down and tell her to wake him up and tell him that she, Mary's going to have a baby. Um, and he has it all mapped out. I got cast as the donkey. I, I kid you not, I was cast as the donkey. But we had to have a serious discussion one morning uh, about how he felt he was the one who should play Joseph at our Bethlehem event. And we had to really talk him down to accepting a role as a shepherd. The funny thing was, he was a shepherd, and, and there was no shepherd role in the thing, but he still came up and told his story that he learned from preschool and told everybody, everybody about the angel that he saw. Uh, but through those through avenues, I've been thinking a lot about Joseph and about his role in the story, which is very small. And... Uh, what it must have been like to be Joseph. And I think there's some interesting things that we can learn as we look at the little bit of Joseph's character that's revealed in his story. So I'm going to read us Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to unpack his story. Now just get ready, because it starts off really action-packed. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, 
Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Azza, Azza the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile and to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So as we look at the story of Joseph, I want to start by understanding his background. Now, the first section of that chapter was not the most exciting, but it was very important. And it would have been important to no one more than, than, uh, than Joseph himself. In fact, there's a strong tradition that tells us that Joseph and his sons had maintained that genealogy and that that's how it made its, hands, made its way into the hands of the gospel writers. But that's very important because that's not just a list of names. That is a family tree that traces a promise from God. It starts with Abraham and then is transformed in David into not just a promise, but also a crown. And that crown is tied up in the promises of God. And it's been prophesied that, that the promises of God will be returned through the heir to that crown. And that lineage goes through Joseph. Joseph was a son and heir of David. Now, it's easy for us, it's, it's, it's actually hard for us to think about what that mentality would have been like for Joseph because we know where that promise was going to end up. But as far as Joseph and his family knew, men in his family knew that they, someone in their family was going to be a big deal. Right? They knew at some point, maybe this generation, one of us is going to be a big deal. And as far as they knew, hey, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm going to be the big deal. They probably each started out wondering, am I going to be the big deal? And then at some point when they figured out, no, I'm not going to be the big deal, maybe my son is going to be the big deal. You know, kind of like maybe I'm going to make it to the major leagues, and then you don't make it into major league baseball. You think maybe my kids will be professional athletes or, or things like that, you know. But this promise was passed down through the family so that Joseph knew that somebody was going to come from his family. 
And he was, carry, he was either going to fulfill that promise or carry it through to the next generation. We can also tell one other thing about Joseph's mentality and, and what he was thinking about in terms of those promises. Because again, for us, we, we read this story already knowing what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be, and so that's really the only terms we think in. But Joseph probably was thinking in different terms about what the Messiah would look like, and we can tell because of the names he gave to his children. The names of Joseph's children indicate to us that he was passionate about the liberation of Israel. Now, why do I say that? We've talked about this, I think, a couple of times before in the, over the past few years. If we look at the list of names, we see a list of the names of Joseph's sons in Mark chapter 6. It says, isn't this the carpenter? This is a crowd looking at Jesus, saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Now, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we have, again, very strong tradition, uh, very strong, very early tradition telling us the names of Jesus' sisters as Mary and Salome, which means that Joseph's um, family looked like this. We've got Jesus, James, Judas, Joseph, Simeon, Mary, and Salome. Now, at this time, there was a special political atmosphere in Nazareth, and it was because it would have been less than 200 years since a family known as the Maccabees had led a revolt against the Greek Empire, and they had won. And they had liberated Israel from this empire that had been persecuting them. And that family was called the Maccabees. And here is an abbreviated version of their family tree. So you've got Mattathias, the father, of the patriarch of the family. His sons are John, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, or Lazarus. Jonathan, and then the two famous women who were a few generations down in the family were Mary and Salome. Do those names look familiar? These are very common names in Nazareth at this time. In fact, it's a unique thing about the Jewish culture in this time and this place. So one of the pieces of evidence we have that the New Testament Gospels, that the Gospels were, are accurate because they actually get the right names. When you read the Gospels written later, they choose weird names. But here, one of the things you'll notice is there's a lot of names in common. Names meant a lot back then. And the, the reason why people were choosing these names so much, the reason why there's so many Johns and Simons and Judases and Lazaruses and Jonathans and Marys and Salomes in the New Testament is because that culture was really hoping that the thing that the, the Maccabees did would happen again. And Joseph had that same mentality. So, and, and this was just normal, what people, everybody thought the coming of the Messiah was going to look like. It was going to be the liberation of Israel from their enemies. There's one more thing that we can tell about Joseph's character, about who Joseph is, and I think this might be the most important, but we have to dig under a, a layer of the translation, at least in, in this particular case. I tend to use the New International Version, which is usually very good. But in this case, they've let their theology slip into their translation. So it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The phrase I want to talk about is this, was faithful to the law and yet. Now what that tells us is that Joseph wanted to keep the law. At the same time, Joseph didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And apparently, those are opposites. 
which means that following the law means he should have exposed her to public disgrace. So these are two opposing things. This is a common mindset we have that there's justice and there's mercy. And justice has no mercy, and mercy means making exceptions to justice. And so Joseph cares about justice, he cares about following the law, but he's got some reservations. He's like, uh, he gets a bit squeamish about actually going through with the full force of it, so he, he, wants to, he wants to go a different route. And the angel gets him out of this predicament. The problem is that this is the only place in the entire New Testament that the NIV translates these words this way. The words at the root of this are dikaios and kai. Dikaios means righteous. It is the exact same word that was translated as righteous for Zechariah two weeks ago. You know what kai means? And. Notice what word is not in here yet. It doesn't say yet. What it actually says is, Joseph, her husband, was righteous and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Now, to me, this is an important point. And it's something that we often get twisted around in our interpretation of the Bible. Is we, they, the translators assumed that justice and mercy can't coexist, and so they must be opposed. So we must have to translate that and as and yet. But that's not what it actually says. It says that he was righteous. That means he was on good terms with God. That means he had a heart like God's, and he didn't want to publicly disgrace her. He was compassionate. That compassion and that having a godlike character, they go together. There's no yet, there's no but, there's no contradiction. And Joseph, he may not have understood that. He may maybe he thought there was a contradiction too. But that part of him that didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace, like announce in front of the entire village that she was pregnant out of wedlock and divorce her and turn her and you know make it just a huge deal. That part of him that reflected God's character. So what we know about Joseph in this moment is that Joseph, the phrase I'm going to use is he was righteously compassionate. And I don't think that we often recognize that that's a possibility. To be righteously compassionate. Or maybe we think that that's the compassionate part is optional. Right? You, you should be righteous. You can also be compassionate if you want. But for Joseph, these two are the same things. Now, this trait in Joseph, so Joseph probably wanted to either be the Messiah or be the father of the Messiah. And, and his reference for that would have been the Maccabees. So he either wanted to be Mattathias, the father of the Maccabees, or Judas. Like when he was a kid, he pretended to be Judas Maccabeus beating up the, the Greeks. Now he's thinking, maybe I can be Mattathias, the father of the Messiah, and Mattathias in the story plays an important role, but, but we can already tell that Joseph is no Mattathias. He's not cut out to be that kind of man because Mattathias was not known for righteous compassion. Here's how Mattathias's rebellion started. The Greeks sent a representative to, the, to his village to tell them to sacrifice to the Greek gods to show their loyalty to the Greek empire. And Mattathias says very publicly, no, he's not going to do it. When he had finished speaking those words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar of Modin, 
according to the king's command. When Mattathias saw this, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. This is the way the story is told in a book called First Maccabees, which is not in our Bibles, but it's reasonably historically accurate. And it's the story, it's the, one of the books that they were raised on at the time. It was considered part of the Jewish Bible when Jesus was a kid. So these are the stories that they told people. And notice, Mattathias is righteous because he, he is so filled with zeal that he kills people who break the law. This is someone being righteously angry, righteously violent, not righteously compassionate. And imagine if Mattathias had been there with Joseph at the time, he would have said, no, you, you turn her out. You call the city together, you tell everybody what she's done, and you turn her out. Because we need to be righteous, we need to keep the law. But Joseph was no Mattathias. And I think that's an important part of who Joseph was and why Joseph was the right person to receive the calling that he received. Now let's take a minute and let's look at the calling that God put on Joseph. What exactly is being asked of Joseph when the angel appears to him? Because after he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So what is he supposed to do? Supposed to marry a woman who is already pregnant. Now, these days, that you know, that's not we, we don't have the same kind of pressure on that kind of a situation as they would back then. Because remember, his job. His job is to carry on the family. That's always any man's job. But especially this man who is an heir to to David's lineage. He's supposed to carry on the family. And God is telling him to marry a woman who is already pregnant. Do you see how that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of his mission and who he thinks himself to be, right? So even if he fully trusts Mary, and we don't actually, I wish we had more of the conversations between Mary and Joseph, I really do. We don't, we don't get any of that. But even if he and Mary completely trust each other all the way through and everything's fine between the two of them, there's still something being asked of him when it says, hey, instead of having your own firstborn, marry this woman who's already pregnant. Because what's going to happen is, he's, he's, well, it's, there's one really important phrase to show us what God is asking of him, not just, or beyond marrying Mary. Notice he's, the angel calls him Joseph, son of David. This is the only time in the Gospels that someone other than Jesus is called a son of David. You know why Joseph is called the son of David? Because Joseph is the one that Jesus inherited the title from. Because as the firstborn son of Joseph, Jesus became his heir. And that's what makes Jesus a son, of Joseph, a son of David. Now, we struggle with that because we know a lot about DNA, and we, ex- we think Jesus needs to genetically descend through, uh, from David. That's not how they thought of things. There's actually several places in the, in the genealogy where that, those things don't quite line up. But it, so in this case, Jesus is considered a son of David because he is Joseph's son. That's why both genealogies go through Joseph in the Gospels. And so Joseph is making Jesus his heir. And there's one more thing that would have surprised, that would have surprised Joseph. 
in what the angel said. It says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from... What's he expecting? From the Romans, right? He's going to be a new Judas Maccabeus. He's going to be the hammer. He's going to come in and defeat... No, he's going to save them from their sins. That's not what he was expecting. And, and now, here's the thing. If, if I was just, I've, just been, I've been thinking a lot about what it would be like to be Joseph. Imagine, you're told you're going to raise the guy that's going to save Israel from the Romans. As a father, you know what to do, right? I mean, if, if you're a soldier, you're going to teach your kid to be a soldier. If you're not a soldier, you're going to find a soldier, and you're going to apprentice your kid to a soldier, as a soldier, right? It's like the people who really want their kid to be a major league baseball player, what are they doing with them? They're teaching them how to throw. They're teaching them how to catch. They're out in the front yard. They're doing all these things, right? Now, let's say that you've been told, no, your son is going to save the world from their sins. What do you do with that? How do you raise your kid to save people from their sins? See, if Jesus was going to be Judas Maccabeus, then Joseph could have taught him the same things that Mattathias taught. Mattathias, when it was time for him to die, he called his sons together and he said to them, Arrogance and scorn have now become strong. It's a time of ruin and furious anger. Now, my children, show zeal for the law and give your lives for the covenant of our ancestors. Here is your brother Simeon, who I know is wise in counsel. Always listen to him. He shall be your father. Judas Maccabeus has been a mighty warrior from his youth. He shall command the army for you and fight the battle against the peoples. You shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. That's Mattathias. That's a, that's a rousing speech. That's how, that's how a father hands down the family business to his kids, right? That's what Joseph would have been expecting to do. But he's got to raise someone who's going to save the world from their sins. That means a couple of things. One, and, and it's, you know, how do you prepare a kid for that? But also, that's not his own hope. He's got to adjust to a completely different plan. He's got to raise a Messiah who would save Israel from sin, not the Romans. And he may, not, he may care more about saving them from the Romans than from sin. That, that's a mentality shift that he has to go through. Not just to accept, but to actively be a part of it. Right? It's one thing to accept that the people in power are going to do something different than you want them to do. That happens regularly with election cycles. But he's got to actually be a central part of this thing that is not going the way he was expecting it to. And lastly, this isn't something that Joseph knew, but it's something that, uh, that inevitably happened. What, what is the other really big thing that Joseph did? Anybody know? What was the other really big thing that, Joseph, that Jesus' father Joseph did? Anybody? So he said he died? Yeah, <laughs> Nothing. In fact, notice in that passage where I listed Joseph's kids, notice how they said, isn't this the carpenter, talking about Jesus, isn't this Mary's son and brother? No mention of Joseph, which means Joseph's probably been dead a long time. There are probably a decent number of people who have moved into town since Joseph died, and people would say, who's Joseph? But they know Mary and the sons. He died before getting to see any of this happen. He didn't even get to see the fulfillment of this plan that he, his family had been waiting for for generations. 
And he had to make this huge pivot and make this huge sacrifice, and he never got to see in person everything that transpired. This is the mission that God is putting in front of Joseph. It's not an easy, simple yes. God is asking a lot of him. So what does Joseph do? When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. But he did it. I don't know what to make of this also. You notice the fact that Mary gets a full-on angel and Joseph gets a dream about an angel? All right, that's, that's another level of deniability, right? Like you say, man, I had some bad meatloaf. That was a weird dream. I've been thinking about Mary said she saw an angel, so I dreamed about an angel. You know, you could just dismiss it. But even with just a dream about an angel, he says yes, and he does it. And as we understand what it means for him to go through on what the angel called him to do, this is the first thing that I want us to recognize he's doing. First of all, Joseph humbly accepted a supporting role in God's plan. Remember, this is a guy who was fully eligible to be the guy, as far as he knew. When he was a kid, he's like, maybe I'm going to be the guy. Maybe the Holy Spirit's going to descend on me, and I'm going to lead everybody to victory. Or maybe I'm going to be the dad of the guy, and I'm going to get to teach him how to go to victory. He expects to be, we all expect to be the main characters in our own lives, right? Funny, um, I, I forget, I can't remember where this came up. I was, re- I was reading a book, no, I was listening to a sermon, and some, he, they pointed out a study where they, study, they studied people about their, how well they do in their job. Like, where would you rank yourself? Are you above average or not in your job? And something like 75% of people rank themselves as above average in their job, which is impossible, right? You cannot have 75% of the people above 50, like, are better than average. And in fact, among, edu- among um, professors, like, like with PhDs, it was even worse. Like something like 80, 85% of professors rank themselves as above average in their careers. Because we all tend to think of ourselves as the main characters, which makes it really hard for us to accept roles, uh, supporting roles, when they're offered to us. It's really hard for us to let someone else be the guy, for someone else be the person, to take a role that is less glamorous, that gets fewer lines, that makes less money. It's hard enough when that happens in our, in our lives with other people. And when God calls us to that, especially difficult. Joseph was willing to humbly accept a supporting role in God's plan. He was willing to be the stepdad of the guy. He was also willing to accept a plan that didn't match his expectations. He didn't tell the angel, can, can you free us from the Romans first? Right? Isn't that what we want to do? Free me from my circumstances first, and then we'll work on the sin. Right? If you free me from my circumstances, then I'll never do these sins again. Like, let's work on the things that seem most pressing to me, and then we'll get to God's priorities, then we'll get to the sin, right? That, that very easily could have been his response. But Joseph, in another show of humility, because that's really what it requires, 
He was willing to trust a plan that didn't match his expectations. Again, not just accept that the people in power are going a different direction, but to actively be a part of it. Notice, Joseph, there's risk in what Joseph is doing here too. Even if it's none other than the fact that they could do math back then too, people were going to notice how much time passed between the wedding and the birth of Jesus. His whole family was going to know. Like when, they got to, when they got to Bethlehem, I don't know if any of his family members made, family members made a remark like, didn't you just get married like four months ago? Well, pretty premature, right? Like, you know, this is public stuff. There was no privacy back then. Joseph is, is making, taking, putting real trust in God's plan and making real, taking real risks and making real sacrifices to be part of this plan that does not fit with his expectations. That is really hard for us to do. We will sacrifice a lot for the plans that we want, but will we trust plans that don't go the direction we want them to go? Will we invest in what God is doing when it's not as satisfying to us? Ultimately, we're left to ask, what made Joseph different? Last week we talked about how Mary was different, and it was because she, what set her apart was that she said, yes, she was willing to accept this mission that God gave her that she didn't understand, or that she didn't, she didn't know what to expect. But with, with Joseph, as we try and understand where all of this comes from, without much of his character, what I'm going to tell you now, honestly, is speculation. But it's, in, it's speculation informed by the only character trait that we know about Joseph. The only thing that we have from Scripture about who Joseph is and how that might inform what Joseph did. I think that the reason why Joseph was willing to commit to this plan, the reason why he didn't didn't just dismiss the dream about the angel, is because he recognized in what was happening. He recognized in this vision. He saw the fingerprints of God. He recognized and embraced God's righteous compassion. I think that there was some part of him that saw that what, what he was being asked to do fit with who God is. Somehow, I wonder if there was some part of him that said, you know, I never really liked it when they read the Maccabees in Sabbath school. It never quite fit right with who I think God is and what he's been doing. Somehow, even though I don't understand it, this makes more sense. This feels right. I've known a lot of people who... Um, I think that as, as pre, we, can, we can put so much stock in what teach, preachers teach and, and the, the doctrinal statements of churches. I've been in churches with a variety of different doctrinal stances, and what I've found in each one of them is that there are good people who, I, I, I liken them to ducks. They have good gospel sense, and bad teaching just rolls off their back like water off a duck. Now, there's the opposite, too. There are people who just will, you can listen to good preaching and it never quite sinks in. But people who know the heart of God and recognize what God is doing. And maybe he even heard his rabbi talk about how important it was to be really strict on those marriage laws. And if, if, you're, if your fiance messes around, make sure you divorce her publicly. And you think, eh, that's not God. Now, I'm not saying that this is just a gut thing, because uh, another one of the messages that we hear out in the world is trust your gut, ignore the Bible, or you know, only follow the Bible when it matches your gut. That's not true. 
Because what I'm talking about is what God reveals in the Old Testament. In Micah, um, God says, or uh, the prophet Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act, just, to act justly and love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Notice, act justly and love mercy. For God, those two things go together. One doesn't make exceptions to the other. Zephaniah says, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion on one another. And Isaiah says, learn to do right, seek justice, which means defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We could go on, I could actually preach the whole sermon on this one point, just going through the Bible and pointing out that for God, justice and compassion are not opposites. In fact, how often does God uh, react badly to people who don't show compassion? And God's justice, and God, God's righteous anger uh, is built up when people aren't compassionate toward each other. What's happening here is that Joseph recognized the fingerprints of God because he knew the character of God. He knew that God was righteously compassionate. And so when God called him to act, he could see God's fingerprints. And he knew that that was the that he knew to trust that dream. As we talk about our own road to Christmas and the choices we all face as to whether we're going to be transformed by the birth of Christ, we must first of all recognize that, like Joseph, we are offered a supporting role in God's plan. Here's the thing: the leading role's already been cast. In fact, in fact, in the first, like the whole, all the title characters, they've all been cast. All that's available for any of us is supporting roles. Now that's, on the one hand, that's a good thing because I can't carry a play like this, right? I can't, if I was the leading character in God's plan to save everything, it would flop. But it also means that as we as we look for God's call in our lives, we have to remember, I'm not the main character. It's not all about ticking all of my boxes. It's not necessarily going to take me to the place that, that I imagine myself to be. I'm not necessarily going to get to be Mattathias or Judas Maccabeus or the Major League Baseball player or those kinds of things. Maybe you will get to be those people, but in those roles, God has a, you're in that place, that role, for a different reason not for glory or for attention, but because God uses people in those positions. Ultimately, every one of us has a supporting role in God's plan where everything we are given is meant to support the mission of Jesus. Every opportunity we are given, every place where God sends us, we are supporting his mission. And so many of our problems happen when we take control back and say, no, this movie's about me. And this might just be another way of saying the same thing, but like Joseph, we also are asked to trust in a plan that is different from our own. It requires a lot of self-control to follow God's plan because usually the departing from God's plan is really satisfying in the moment. It's really satisfying in the moment to make that cutting remark at that person or to get back at that person, or to hold that thing over that person, you know, hold, refuse to forgive them and, and hold on to that wrong. You go on and on in the different ways that, that, and I think that's why it's so tempting 
to go our own way is because it's usually more satisfying in the short term. It ticks our boxes. We, we like it. That's where we want to go. And it may even be like where we feel we need to go because we may, need to be, we may be afraid of what happens if I don't protect myself from this thing. If I don't protect myself from those people, if I don't stop this thing from happening, it's really hard for us to love our enemies. No, I need to protect myself from them. It's really hard for us to forgive people. It's hard for us to do these things. But ultimately, what we are being invited to do is to put our trust in a plan that is very different from our own. And we have to be aware of that so that we're not just following our own instincts every time. We need to be asking ourselves, in this situation, where is God's plan going? Because it may not be the, one that, the direction my instincts are going. I know how tempted Joseph was to teach Jesus how to swing a sword. You know, teach him how to fight, give him some boxing lessons, those kinds of things. But we're following a different plan. And ultimately, no matter where you are, no matter how much God has given you or where God has called you, our role is to share God's righteous compassion with the world. Our role is to show people who God is and to show them his righteous compassion. It needs to be righteous because compassion without righteousness is just indulgence and enabling. But it needs to be compassionate because righteousness without compassion is heartless. And it doesn't actually lead to restoration. So when we go into situations where we're pulled in two different directions, we need to remember that our mission is to show the righteous compassion of God. That's what it means with the old 90s thing. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? And hopefully, like Joseph, as we ask that question, we'll notice the path that has God's fingerprints on it. We'll notice the path that, that is consistent with God's character and who he's revealed himself to be through Scripture and through the character of Jesus. We can follow that path. Amen? And ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to consider what... God is putting in front of you right now. We believe that every time the gospel is preached, that there, we have an opportunity to respond. And maybe God is putting some particular situation on your heart, some particular relationship. Maybe God is um, calling, maybe there's just something going on that God has been talking to you about and you've been unwilling to commit on. I encourage you to be open to that and to respond to that now. Maybe you have never given your life to Jesus. Today is the best day for you to commit